This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Today, my guest on Shareable is none other than Tony Chapman. He is a speaker and a corporate relationship expert. He's the author of The Force Multiplier, How to Lead Teams Where Everyone Wins. He is also one of my favorite human beings, and I am thrilled to finally have him on Shareable. Tony, welcome to the show. Jeff, thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Thanks, man. I... Uh, in thinking about having you on the show, I was like, man, there's so many things that we could talk about. I, and uh, even before we jumped on, we, we got into it. And there's talking about speaking, talking about impact, talking about, um, you know, the, the world around us and, and how to make your mark. Uh, there's so many places to go. Why don't we just start out with introducing yourself to people, kind of the, the sort of work that you're involved in these days. And I think you and I will just kind of take it from there. That sounds amazing. Let's do it. So I'm Tony Chapman. I'm a professional speaker and corporate relationship expert. And all that really means is I believe that when you look at a company, it's great to look at the products, great to look at the processes. But if you don't look at the people side, if you don't look at the relationship side, you're in for a world of hurt. And truthfully, it's the relationships that either give an organization a competitive advantage or can be their Achilles heel. And so I realize for most people, and especially maybe Let's start with, for me, I was trained in all the technical aspects of work and of life. And, and you go in and you, you, you understand process engineering and you understand all these other things, but you rarely get great training on the relationship part of it. And, and that's also in grad school. It just rarely happens unless you study a discipline that does that. But for most people, that also starts to define their personal success their personal business success, and their career advancement. So that's my focus. And I love it. I love the fact that you can work with people and help them to better connect. But those connections not only help the person that they're managing or connecting with, but it helps the individual as well. They become more fulfilled. So it, it excites me. I love it, man. You kind of, uh, you touched on something in, in what you were just saying, but your background actually, I think, lends a really interesting context to the fact that you're doing this work now in relationships. Um, your background was, it was chemical engineering, correct? You said? Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, <laughs> undergrad. Tell people and, about that. Cause that's a, I think it's a really interesting context for the sort of work that you are moving into and, and that you've been doing for the last, what, five, 10 years? Uh, 15 15. 15. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a chemical engineer. My undergraduate degree actually had a double major. One was called paper science, which is a specialized form of chemical engineering for the paper industry. The other was actually chemistry. So I was a chemistry nerd. Basically, I love that stuff. And so I'm the last person that people expect to be having this conversation, right? It's I, I was in a lab. I did have a lab coat. I was developing my first patent at 25, you know, all of those things. And yet even there, I connected the dots. I said, you know, I'm good at some of the stuff, but it's my ability to be more relatable. It's to take these complex topics and present them to a person who's, this is not their discipline. 
that really was to my advantage. And look, relationships move the world. Like, okay, here's a quick story. My first business, I, I don't think I've ever told this story. We were getting off to a, a yeah. grand old start. I love original stories on shareable. It makes me so happy. This is great. My first business trip, I'm at a paper mill in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, you know, we're going there. This is like, I am kind of like the new guy, but I'm the liaison between corporate and the actual paper mill. And for those who don't know how a paper mill works, or you never had that, the, the pleasure of that pungent aroma of being near a paper mill, because it is something else. You know, it's a continual process. So you're, you know, if you think about like a roll of toilet paper or a roll of paper towels, you're making gargantuan rolls all the time. It just never stops. Okay. And so we're at a point we're putting in a new chemical. I'm new. I don't really know what's going on, but at what point, you know, everybody's, Hey, let's, we want dinner. And I got an expense account. I'm like, okay, I got dinner for everybody. What do you want? And normally it's like, you know, you go to Burger King or something. But one of the guys was like, I want Chinese food. I'm like, cool. Order it. And so like, man, nobody ever buys us Chinese food. So we're sitting there, we're eating Chinese food and something that we've done causes the process to break. Okay. Now it takes about 15 minutes. Even if you know what's wrong, it takes about 15 minutes to rethread the paper machine. All the while you're losing about $350 of net profit per minute, right? It's just, you're literally just dumping money and we don't even know what's wrong. And I'm watching the machine just like, go haywire. And I'm panicking. And everyone's like, yo, relax, Chinese food. We got this. And literally, because I bought them Chinese food, we saved the account. They went, they fixed it. They had my back. I didn't know technically what was going on. But it was literally, I made such an emotional deposit with them by doing what nobody else would do. And I thought it was pretty simple that they were like, look, you take care of us, we'll take care of you. And I think that's how a lot of business really works. I completely agree with you. I do want to push back on one thing. I think the fact that you were in chemistry makes perfect sense how you moved into relationships. If you really think about it, isn't that what we talk about in relationships? Whether two oh boy, I did Jeff that. The I just, Here yeah, he comes. Oh that. my goodness. All right. So, well, so I will say this though. Let me say this real quick. Yeah. What I will say that's important for people is relationships are not all touchy-feely. There really are studies and metrics and data that go along with it. I think that's what gives me a unique perspective is it's not just, hey, this feels good, but it's also like, okay, this works, but let's look at all of the things that back up why it works. There is a an art and a science to it. Do you think that, that come, your, your perspective on that comes from the background that you had in kind of a more, for lack of a better term, like more of a left brain perspective that like you kind of got into things in more of an engineering capacity? So that you come into the idea of relationships and moving cultures forward by looking at that in sort of a process-oriented way of thinking, or, or do you think that comes from somewhere else? No, you're absolutely right. In just by nature, when I do something that works, I need to know why, or at least I need to know if it's repeatable. Mm -hmm. So when I started to realize, okay, I'm connecting with this person, wait, I'm connecting with this person, but not that person, but I'm doing the same thing. Why? And there was a lot of why in it. And that really led me to understanding this in a greater way. So I do believe, you know, that perspective, understanding processes and, and breaking things down and looking for common denominators, all of those things really play into it. Yes. So to, to phrase your work in potentially a different way and tell me if this is accurate, 
in the organizations you work with, you are working in a in a capacity of dealing with their leadership and with their culture. To us, to us is, and there's probably other things that are connected with that, but I would say leadership and culture are kind of a a businessy term way of saying relationships in the context of business, right? Like either the relationship between management and their, you know, the people that they manage, or uh, you know, the relationship between people and each other on the team, right? One hundred percent. Leaders create environment. People create culture. One hundred percent. Got it. So as a process-oriented thinker, and as you know, I have uh, written a book on leadership that's coming out in January 2022, so I love talking about leadership. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it, by the way. Thank you so much, sir. Um, and, and you've already written a book dealing with leadership and culture, how to lead teams where everyone wins. So that, you know, I think I'm trying to follow in your footsteps and hopefully bundle our books together. So in terms of like thinking from your process-oriented brain and looking at, you know, things that actually work, because I think these concepts of leadership and culture sometimes are, are put in the fluffy category, just like relationships, right? Like, oh, well, of course we want people to be happy, but really what matters is the bottom line. How have you approached, um, one, having the conversation to convince people that these are things that are important, like the, that leadership and culture and relationships just broadly are important to a company? Let's start there. Sure, it, ROI, right? You just said the bottom line matters. Okay, so if the bottom line matters, then let's talk about the fact that when you have an more, a more engaged culture, you have more productivity, more profit, less turnover, your customer service is improved, your sales are improved. You know, everything that affects the bottom line is impacted by culture and by leadership. You know, and the problem is we refer to them as soft skills, as though they don't have the impact of a hard skill. And yet, Hard skills without quote unquote soft skills will get you a great product that you can't sell. So to me, that's it. Yeah, no, I totally get that. So I know a lot. So the, the talk that I came to see of yours was on unconscious bias and you uh -oh. touch on a lot of different uh, topics that intersect with unconscious bias and equity in the workplace and things like that. And there's a lot of data out there. Like there's tons of data out there to support why that's a good thing. In your experience, you're still doing a lot of this work with organizations that have a long way to go on a lot of these problems. Why do you think, I guess I, I, I'm already going to answer in my head why I think it's still a problem because it's a freaking huge problem, but <laughs> well, um, what, what, what's the status of things right now? Because we know that there's data to support um, you know, creating more equitable workplaces, opening up your culture and, and being more inclusive. Like, Why are these still things that are challenging? Oh man, let's play. So <laughs> I'm just I'm laughing. I actually had this conversation with uh, a DEI expert three days ago, and we were talking about it. There's a few problems. Number one, to really, if we're talking about inclusion and dealing with bias and everything else, there's a, a level to which there has to be a change in the power structure, mm -hmm. and people don't necessarily want to lose power. People benefit, certain people, a small few benefit. And the truth is they would benefit more from inclusivity, but there's just a fear. And even if you walk through all of the metrics and all of the studies on here's where, you know, inclusion is going to affect the bottom line. It's your organization is more resilient. It's more productive. You know, the 50 best companies for minorities consistently outperform the S&P 500 over three and five year periods. You just start rattling off all that stuff in the back of their mind. They're like, yeah, I believe that, but 
A, is it worth the fight? Because it's going to be hard. Yeah. And then B, what about me? What happens to me? If, if I do this and I, I've only had one person in all of the workshops, all of the speeches, all the keynotes, presentations, I've only had one person actually verbalize it. And he said, well, if I do this, if, if I help them win, don't I lose? As though it's a zero sum game. Yeah. I think that, that he spoke for a lot of people. They may not have really thought about it in that way, in that context. And the truth of the matter is all the numbers show that if you're more inclusive, everybody literally wins. The reason the economy was growing before COVID was primarily attributed to diversity efforts. I mean, there, there's all these numbers, but human fear that combined with just our, our resistance to change, right? We, even when things are, could be better, people like things the way they are. It's more comfortable. It's the known. And, you know, we, we just have this problem interwoven into our society and it's going to take some work. I'm, I, at times I'm hopeful at times I'm like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I, I do think we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that there has been major strides, right? We would also hurt ourselves if we were satisfied with strides that we made in comparison to who we claim to be. It, I, I feel you on all of that. And for me, the, the gut punch is a little bit is like, because I'm not particularly like hardcore, like capitalism, pro profit, blah, blah, blah. I just feel like, well, it's also just like a good thing to do because, you know, human beings. But aside from that, you mentioned it's going to be hard, right? So it leads me to wonder, is this across the board a sort of thing that you think maybe this just falls into the, if something involves change and it's going to be difficult, people are resistant. So maybe to a certain extent, even though this is a large problem, is a very difficult problem, it's one that affects different people in different ways versus like implementing a new CRM or something like that. Is this part and parcel of just the trend that human beings resist things that are difficult uh, and that cause them to have to change? That's a significant portion of it. And that's also what gives me a unique advantage because I actually have a change management background. And that's one of the topics we talk about as an organization. And so trying to have a culture change without understanding change is a problem. So yes, people resist change. They start to sabotage change. They, they, they literally, they, they find people who will tell them that things are okay and we'll go back to the way things were. I mean, it's, that is so much of human nature. And th that is a major part of it. And it really takes incredible leadership to get through it. And that's one of the challenges is it takes not good, not average, incredible leadership to drive through it on a consistent basis and leadership that's looking at the long term. You know, you can't fix this in the short term because we'll just boomerang right back. So I do believe that's a big part of it. What do you think that sort of great leadership looks like? And I know you've worked on that with organizations and you've probably worked with people that have uh, successfully moved in the right direction, probably those that have been resistant. What does great leadership look like? I think there's a lot of people out there that are either in leadership roles or want to show leadership in whatever role they're in that are looking for ways to make an impact, to make things better, to move things in the right direction. What does that great leadership look like? What is it characterized by? What sort of actions do those people take? Like help, help people understand that are listening how to go about moving towards 
great leadership that addresses some of these issues. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you qualifying that at the end. I think that there is great leadership in general and then great yeah. leadership when you're going through change, especially this type of change. Mm -hmm. First, an acute awareness of the problem is critical. You know, many leaders just don't have that. I think second is the ability to admit that you're wrong and the willingness to learn. Oh, because that's one of the hardest on that one. That's like massive. Well, that's and that's see, here's the problem. When you're talking about diversity, inclusion and bias, we all have horrific blind spots. There's just no way around it. I mean, it could be race. It could be gender. It could be orientation. It could be nationality. It could be accent. It could be, you know, the way someone dresses, tattoos, I mean, everything. And we profile people. And even when we think that we're really good people, we're going to be wrong. It's been a learning curve for me as a black male who talks about diversity and inclusion. It's been a, a huge learning curve. And the target is constantly moving. What was acceptable in 2018 is not acceptable in 2021. And so the ability to, you know, we always talk about being resilient and all this stuff, but the re personal resilience starts with being able to say, okay, you know what? I messed that up. I'm sorry. I was wrong. You know, okay. What did I do wrong? How, how can I be better in this situation? Because great leadership in this situation is not perfection. It is someone who is constantly willing to recalibrate so that they're always going in the direction of perfection. I think that's the difference. And so that's a hard thing. I mean, a lot of people don't have that inner security, that confidence, that you know, all of the things that it takes to really just say, you know, in the midst of it, while everyone's looking at you to not get defensive and to go, you know what? I was wrong. So teach me. It's huge. Yeah. So interestingly enough at like it, I find this happens a lot as I'm on podcasts is like, I'll have been writing about something and then I get into a conversation where I'm like, Oh my God, that just came up. So I have a, a post that's going out soon called heroes and villains. And I was exploring the idea of heroism and villainy and like whether or not those are destinations and objective measures or whether they're practices. And, um, I, I think a lot about this idea, obviously, cause superhero Institute and everything being heroes. Right. What's your take on the idea of even heroism and villainy in general, like sort of these ideas of um, nobody's going to be perfect, right? It's, it's about the pursuit and it's about continuing on. There are a lot of people right now, especially in the, the kind of times we've been going through over the last five years, it's kind of a, a mass, I don't want to call it a mass awakening because that's not exactly fair. It's not quite mass enough, but there is a greater awareness of things that are happening in society, I think. And I think it's causing a lot of people to look back on their previous actions, whether it's the Me Too movement or whether it's the stuff that's happening um, with you know all of the, the police killings and things like that. There's a difference in the way people are seeing the world. And I think they're reflecting back on who they who they were, maybe decisions they've made in the past and things that they've been ashamed of or whatever. Like we've all have mistakes in our past, right? So looking out at the idea of creating, um, creating a, a movement of people that are, are trying to go out and do the right thing. How, how, what do you think are the limitations towards the idea of like an army of superheroes out trying to fix the world? Um, what do you see as kind of being 
potential limitations of that or problems of that or um, even the the real the the legitimacy of that being a possibility you know i mean so in this war there are going to be no perfect allies right you you don't have you don't have those superman and wonder woman who seem to have almost a flawless noble character you have a lot more batman who I love. Dude, Batman is like one of my favorites, right? Yeah. But Batman's seriously conflicted, internally wounded. You know, one minute he's doing good and the next minute you're like, should you have really done that? That was, that, that one right there was questionable. I think that's, you know, I think that's more of our reality. And, you know, so the thing about heroes and villains, think about good quote unquote guys and bad guys. Cause you know, mm-hmm. we use guy as gender neutral is that both sides think they're doing what's right. That's the hard part, right? So both sides are convinced, you know, Thanos is convinced this is what is best, right? I've calculated all, this is what is best. And that's what makes heroism and villainy challenging. And where do you draw the line? You know, what's acceptable? What's, what collateral damages can you work with? What, and I think that's with all of us, right? It's like, I, I think I'm a good guy, right? I think you think I'm a good guy. I think you're awesome. Right. But, you but there's other people out there who don't. Maybe they had an interaction with me on a bad day, or maybe they view me, you know, they have a different view. I think that's part of the reality. There's very few people in the history of this world who are going to be universally viewed as good. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to strive. That's part of why there's that learning curve and we're striving to be good. And we're, it's not that you make up for your flaws. Sometimes you have to learn to accept your flaws mm-hmm. to minimize or, you know, mitigate the impact of them. But, you know, I, I think that, I think that we're more likely to have an army of people who are all along the spectrum from superhero to real questionable, but we're all fighting for a common good. You know, that's, I had a conversation with my martial arts instructor where you're talking about some of the issues I I feel that are going on. We both feel that are going on within our martial art, within the family of dojos. And, you know, he said something interesting. He says, if you only want to be around perfect people, you have to become a monk. But, if you're going to be a warrior, you have to learn to make alliances with people who think differently and sometimes are even questionable for that common good. And I think that's part of where we have to go with it. Do you think that there's, um, in, there's a lot of battles being fought right now. Do you think that there are, I guess this is a question of like objective or more or um, moral relativism, I guess, like, is there like an objective good because you mentioned like what was acceptable in 2018 may not be acceptable now the times are changing things are moving you know who's in charge of that discourse of what is acceptable not acceptable right wrong whatever how how do we as a collective whether it's in business or whether it's in society how do we start to get a measure over what is right i took my i took my crack at it right i did the superhero code here are the 10 things that you should 
the values that you should embody if you want to try to become a superhero, right? Like you've got like resilience, you've got courage, you've got uh, uh, confidence, vulnerability, responsibility, protection, compassion, empathy, growth, self-sacrifice, blah, 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 all these things, right? I was like, that's my best attempt at saying like, if you embody these things, you will avoid some of the trappings of things that cause harm to others, et cetera, et cetera. It, do you think there's a, a way that we can find an agreed upon destination where even if you have this spectrum of allies, that there's some grouping of thing that we should all agree on? Um, or is it everything's relative? I think that there are some basic principles. And I'm just shooting from the hip. Yeah, I did not prepare for this. So if this sounds horrible, um, you know, I'll probably think differently in five minutes. Anyway, <laughs> I just want to make that throw that out there real quick. I do believe that there are some values that are universal. People want what's best for themselves and want what's best for their loved ones, right? Everyone. And to remember that that often dictates why we do what we do. You know, one of the great divides out there, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, is politics, right? Conservatives, liberals. And, you know, if you go to a conservative news station, liberals are trying to destroy America, right? If you go to a liberal station, conservatives are trying to destroy America. Look, neither group's trying to destroy America. That's like stupid. They're not. But they've defined America differently, mm -hmm. right? When conservatives say we're trying to protect or save America, they're talking about the principles primarily. They're talking about the principles that this country's founded on. When liberals talk about it, they're talking about primarily people. Well, what's best for people? And that's where they don't see eye to eye. And the question is, well, which one's right? And as I thought about it, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that it's a, an either or. I think it's an and. And I think it's situational. And that's where we fall apart. That's, so that's where I wrote the book or why I wrote the book is even when dealing with people, we think if I do these two things, then everyone will follow me or want to follow me and they'll feel great. And the reality is we're all so different that we have to be able to translate what we do to the person that we're interacting with, right? If someone, and even just use personalities, if someone is more introverted and detail oriented, they're going to respond very differently to someone who's more extroverted and wants to improvise everything. And which one is right or which one's wrong? Neither. And it also depends on the situation. And it's our ability to be nimble and dynamic and to connect with all of those different people. That's where we start to find common ground. It's if, if we can go, you know what, Jeff, you and I are very different. Now, we're, in truth, we're actually a lot alike, but you and I are very different, right? So... I am going to learn to appreciate our differences without judgment, right? Now, if there are lines that are crossed, primarily lines in terms of harming other people, then that's going to be a problem for us because that, to me, I think is the line you don't cross. But beyond that, you may view the world differently. You may have a different set of priorities. We've got to learn to understand that that's a conversation we're able to have. And not only can we have it, in having it, I realize I can stop using myself as the benchmark for morality 
and start to learn from you. And that helps you to evolve and grow. It's kind of where my head's at in this thing. I dig it. So let me ask you this then. The subtitle to your book is How to Lead Teams Where Everyone Wins. How do you lead a team where everyone wins when we have so many different perspectives and ways that we're coming together? And then as an extension of that, if the team you're leading is, let's say it's a brand, right? You have a big global brand, whatever, and things are happening in the world, should brands take a position on something or not? Because inevitably, that may cause an issue inside of the company where the everybody wins factor may fall apart because of the differing perspectives on things. How do, sure. you, rectif- how do you bring those things together? Sure. So first, let's uh, put some context on everyone wins. The idea of everyone wins is that most leaders are good at leading certain types of people, right? They're, if you look at most organizations, about a third are super engaged, about a third are middle of the road, and about a third could use a good kick in the pants. That's pretty standard. And if you look at Gallup's polls for engagement, it's pretty close to 30, anywhere between 28 and 35% through the history of them ever doing it. it doesn't really, it's never gone outside of that range. Maybe 36, I don't know. So the idea is as a leader, instead of saying, okay, the people that I'm leading that are engaged, those are good employees. And these other people, you know, we, we got to fix them. Instead of doing that saying, you know what? Maybe they're not engaged because of my leadership. And instead of saying it's their fault, let me figure out how I can adapt and change to, because most people want to be engaged. They want to like their job. The original title of the book, honestly, was Why I Hate My Job, which is a totally different conversation, right? So most people want to love their job. They want to love who they work with. And so if leaders then can learn to say, okay, people that aren't engaged are more likely going to be an indicator that I need to grow in my leadership versus an indicator that we're we have a bad hiring process or whatever that makes a world of difference. So that's the, everyone wins. Got it. So now next. Yeah. So that, that context helps us there. So then you go to brands. I think brands, here's the thing. You and I both know there's no brand for everyone around the world. Some think they are, but you know, there's no brand for every Apple. There's an Android for every Coke. There's a Pepsi. There's, you know, so brands have to pick their battles and they say, okay, here's the, here's where I'm for, and here's where I stand for. And, you know, some choose to be completely agnostic, you know, that's their choice. Some choose to take a real hard stand, like a Ben and Jerry's, right? You follow Ben and Jerry's you're like, whoa, can't believe they said that. Right. Others, honestly, like a Nike, they play both sides. Right. We're going to be we're going to be pro Kaepernick and anti Kaepernick at the same time. You know, it's I think the brand has to decide where it's going to be. Um, Is it a brand that has a social commitment? And I think in this day and age, as those who are younger in our workforce are more mission generated, that's going to become a bigger and bigger issue versus just going in and putting in work. So I personally think. Well, I think a brand has to weigh their options and make a calculated decision. Like what happened last year, the fault, the flaw of it was that Black Lives Matter statements became the flavor of the month. So a lot of organizations, you know, put out Black Lives Matter statements and then their employees are like, 
Well, inside of your company, they don't matter. And, you know, you have a disaster or they weren't willing to go beyond a statement and, you know, do something. So I think every company has to figure out, okay, this is who I am. And then I'm going to remain true to who I am until I learn more and evolve. And I know that's kind of a really nebulous answer. That's almost playing playing both sides. But I, I think that's true. I think companies choose their stances but then they also choose when they evolve, but then they acknowledge the fact that they've evolved. Yeah, I think that's the smart way of going about it, especially if kind of to your point about going beyond like the statement, um, like uh, Ron Tite wrote, uh, wrote uh, think, do, say. And I think that's like such a really interesting model to think about that like, it's not enough to like think, say, then do, which is I think what a lot of these statements were. We're like, oh, we support Black Lives Matter. Yeah, but what have you done? Like nothing. Right. Or as opposed to saying like, you know, thinking to yourself, like, we believe in equity and Black Lives Matter, we're going to make all these changes, and then we're going to tell people about it. Oh, that's a different kind of thing, right? That's a, my, my perspective is that all companies should take a position on everything, and that they should back up those positions, and they should use their market power to affect change. But that's also, I'm an idealist like that. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Um, all right. So, so you do a lot of work in, I, I got stuck on that for a second. It's all right. And if you want to go there, let's go there. I, I'm, I'm open to whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I want, I want to shift gears for a minute because I had a couple other things I did want to talk to you about. Speaking, I want to talk to you about, um, you do a little bit of work in government. Uh, I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole because I know that, you know, that could potentially get you into sensitive territories, but you've done a lot of speaking uh, over uh, the course of your career. And um, lately, a lot of that has been in government work. And I'm curious, just at a high level, has much changed over the last, say, 12 months in terms of what that looks like in the world? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, and I would even go back further. I'd go back to 2015 and 2016, where during the election cycle, you really had an anti-government sentiment that was growing in our country. And people forget the vast majority of employees in the federal government are just that, they're employees. You know, they're not decision makers, they're not generals and admirals, they're not, you know, presidentially appointed. They're they're someone who has a good job and hopefully likes what they do and they do it in the government. And and truthfully, they went under the microscope and in the fishbowl. It was devastating to watch people have to respond. I mean, it's, and I'm talking about it every level. I have friends who are, you know, well, I have clients who are early supervisors. I have friends who are one step away from being presidentially appointed. And it was across the board. You saw emotions, you saw shame, you saw people who are trying to do what's right. Many of them honestly could get jobs in private sector making a lot more money, but they do believe in the mission. And, and especially those from an environmental standpoint, the EPA, uh, NOAA, National Oceanic and Administration, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, wow, stumbled over that. Um, and all of those, I mean, most of the people who are in those organizations, you know, National Park Service, they're there because they love it. They they want to save the world and change the world. And, and they find themselves you know, going home and checking on, checking out social media and seeing a horrific anti-government statement by their friends 
by their neighbors. You know, what that does for them internally is horrible. Then over the last 12 months where they've been isolated, just like everyone else. And I think mental health is going to be a major issue over the next five to 10 years. We're, we're going to see a huge pandemic of it because of this last year. You've seen them really be the collateral damage quite often in a lot of these conversations. And then, you know, different sides politically have been enabled and you just see it intensifying. Um, it was really rough. It was rough during the shutdown. It was really rough once Minneapolis happened and that national conversation starting with uh, the George Floyd incident, um, murder, call it what it is. It, it was really, really bad. And then to see the ban, the presidential ban on unconscious bias training, which the way it was reported and the way it was enacted are two very different things. It was catastrophic. It was catastrophic. And I'm, I can't believe I'm, I forget, forgot this. And you can't forget the 33 day government shutdown of 2019, which people haven't recovered from. You know, a lot of consultancies went out of business. Um, a lot of people were damaged from that. I mean, it's, this thing has been a, a rough whirlwind for them. And, you know, in some ways, morale is getting better, but it's going to be a long, long uphill fight for many. Uh, and yet people are still trying to do their job. They're, they're trying to, you know, do what's right. I have friends who are on the um, presidential transition team and, you know, their 2016 experience, 2017 experience versus their 2021 experience were really challenging. You know, it's very different, but they're trying to, they're still like, regardless of what happened, I'm trying to do what's right. It's been really challenging. It's really challenging to watch. My heart goes out to people. You know, my heart goes out to federal workers. My heart goes out to the military. I mean, you know, what they're in the middle of, they didn't know they signed up for. So just, a, um, you do a lot of work with the government and you have a very interesting uh, angle into it a lot of the times based on the work that you do. Would you, would you characterize yourself as confident in the strides that are being made? Or do you feel that there's still plenty more work to do? Like, how do you see the government shaping up in, in the work you've done over the course of the time you work with them? Do you feel like we're moving in a better direction? Because from an outside point of view, it's always hard to tell. Um, kind of what's your gauge on it? Depends on the agency. I think in many ways, there there's really good movement, honestly. In some... There are many ways in which the federal government is ahead of the majority of private sector in terms of inclusion, in terms of, you know, well, in terms of inclusion, we'll just go there. But they suffer in terms of training, leadership training, team building, you know, all of that is taxpayer funds and they have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's right. So, you know, th that's where the battle comes. I think there's an intent to do what is right um, I think that there's been great, great change. There's great, there's a great way to go, but then there's a few, and I'm not going to name them, obviously, but there's a few agencies that are like, you know, drawing lines in the sand and this is where we are and we're not changing. And it's often, it's funny. And I will mention one agency. It's funny. You know, we think about the department of Homeland security, right? And you think about everything that goes on with that from, 
what's going on at the border to, I think, no, ISIS, I can't remember. I think ISIS is separate. I've got to remember. Um, yeah, ISIS is separate. I don't remember if ISIS is separate. I think ISIS is separate. Um, but, you know, you have a lot of people who are conflicted. It's the conflict over what I see as being right and what I'm ordered to do. And, you know, we're not talking now about people at a, you know, entry level position. We're talking about, I was doing a training and someone apologized. Sorry, I couldn't be there. I just spent six hours testifying before Congress. Those people are just as conflicted. And so the truth is that happens at every job, right? I mean, very rarely does someone get to be totally bought into the entire mission, but it's different when A, it is so highly publicized and B, there's so much at stake. Um, but I think that there's definitely movement. I know that's a long winded way to say it. I think there's definitely movement. I think it varies based on which agency, which part of the government, but there's definitely progress. So last question I'll ask you for today. And then, <laughs> right. Um, and then I got to have you back for more talks. Cause I want to, I want to talk to you about speaking. I want to talk to you about so many different things, but la last question I'll ask you, I think is a good place to wrap when you, and, and it's, it's going to be a deeper question that maybe you've thought about, maybe you haven't, but like, if you think about the purpose of your work, like the deeper legacy leave behind impact, leave behind, you could wave a magic wand and your work magically is as successful as it possibly could be and makes the impact. What does that look like? Like, what are you, what are you out there trying to do with the work that you're doing and trying to leave behind? Creating a, creating a more inclusive world, inclusive with every single dimension of diversity. And it's not just diversity, honestly, just that everybody is valued and considered. It's, it's a weird thing to me. You know, we spend more time at work than we do anywhere else. Our wake of our waking moments, right? So if work sucks, life sucks. So you need to feel included there. But then normally inclusion is not compartmentalized. If you're, if you're inclusive at work, you're more likely to be inclusive at home. You're more likely to be inclusive in your community. And so really now what that looks like is, is not just a feel good thing. You know, for example, I'm doing a lot of work in healthcare. There's huge disparities between how ethnic minorities are treated in healthcare and how majorities are treated. There's huge disparities between how men and women are treated in healthcare. I mean, they just recently started doing testing of this new vaccine on women. What, you know what I mean? It's like, what happened there? And so in that space, inclusion saves lives, changes mortality rates, right? In other spaces, it means it's access to jobs, it's access to opportunities, it's access to funds, it's access to, you know, relationships. It's not feeling like, you know, my son is going on a road trip and I'm concerned about some of the states that he's driving through. That's actually happening next week, right? It's not having to think about all of those things, you know, creating a world where that happens. I think I have gotten to the point in life where, yeah, I want to make money. I need to make money. I, I, money is a tool for me, but I'm really thinking more in terms of, you know, what's the world look like for my sons and their friends, your daughter and her friends, you know, to me, that matters a lot right now. So that's where I'd go.
Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate the work that you do. I always appreciate your friendship, your counsel when I need to ask you about something. Uh, I am a big fan of Tony Chapman. Thank you for coming on Shareable. Um, Tell people where they can go and learn more about you, where they can buy your book, where they can hire you, where they can hear your thoughts. The thing that makes the most sense is, you know, my name is Tony Chapman, C-H-A-T is in Tom, M-A-N, TonyChapman.com. You can get to everything. You can get to my book. You can get to all my social media. You can reach out to me. That is just the, the central nervous system of how to contact me. So I'd say TonyChapman.com. You will find me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. For all the listeners, I hope you enjoyed our time together uh, because this episode was awesome. I'd say it was shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.